How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary and to turn off your cell phones, pagers, all these other electronic devices except for the pacemakers. (laughs) And after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, the opportunity to uh, execute the highest form of worship, which is to study your word, to learn how you think, that we may change the way we think and the way we live our lives. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the teaching of your word and that we would, it would give us a greater understanding of how you have set up things in this world to operate that uh, we may understand the importance of the divine institutions, especially the divine institution of government. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement I keep forgetting to make. It's important. If you're here next Wednesday night, you may think the rapture occurred. (laughs) There will not be class next week. Next week's spring break, so that way everybody can have a... Uh, relaxed time. There will be prayer meeting Bible class resuming the next week. I will be leaving this Sunday after church to go to St. Petersburg, Russia, not Florida. And I will be teaching at two different training centers, one in St. Pete and one in uh, south of Moscow at a town called Razan. I was invited by East-West Missions, which is a missionary organization that went in after the Iron Curtain came down to establish training centers, seminaries, Bible colleges for training pastors and planning churches, developing leadership in the former Soviet Union. Last year, when we had the book on spiritual warfare translated into Russian, I sent copies to, we had 3,000 printed, and I sent copies to everybody I knew who was involved in some sort of uh, mission ministry in the former Soviet Union, and that included some people with uh, East-West. I got a call last September that they wanted me to come over and teach on uh, spiritual warfare. And since to everybody's knowledge, this is the only biblically-based book that's been translated into Russian on spiritual warfare. All of the other material that you get over there is just all the charismatic name and claim it, you know, rebuke the devil, bind Satan, none of which has any basis at all in Scripture. It is all just superstitious, mystical mumbo-jumbo. The church has picked up the world's practices of dealing with Satan and baptized it in Christian terminology. And, of course, you have a real problem with that in Russia because Russia, the Russians are very prone to mysticism. So this kind of stuff has a certain appeal in that mystical culture that's been influenced by the Eastern Orthodox 
uh, framework. So this is going to be quite interesting, quite a challenge, and uh, most of the men that are coming have been trained fairly well, but I will be teaching two-day seminars where I'm teaching six hours a day as I cover all of that material. So you can keep me in prayer for the next couple of weeks. Okay, our study this evening is still on capital punishment, part two. Last time we started off looking at the arguments that are generally brought forth against the idea of capital punishment, uh, ideas that usually are generated from two basic sources. The arguments that are generally presented against capital punishment fall into uh, two general categories. The first category is moral objections. They object to the idea of capital punishment on the basis of one overriding principle, and that is the assumption that taking a human life for any reason, for any reason, is morally wrong. The idea that violence to stop violence is, is wrong. And there are usually you have on, you have two sets of arguments that are presented. Usually you have them deal with the idea that it really doesn't uh, act as a deterrent. And this, usually the statistics that are quoted to prove that are flawed because methodology at its very core is flawed. And that is uh, the idea that uh, you can prove the negative. How many? We, there's no way to tell how many people out there are deterred from the act of murder because of capital punishment. You don't know how many people didn't murder somebody. You can't measure that. So there's inherent problems with their uh, basic assumption. And the basic assumption has to do with violence being wrong, etc. And, of course, living in the devil's world, we know that there are always those who oppose with violence the kingdom of God. Jesus, in fact, mentioned that, and we will deal with some of the arguments in the New Testament before we're done this evening. The second range of objections comes from the procedural problem. These are arguments that are based on the idea that the capital punishment is unevenly applied. It's biased according to factors related to money, race, politics, of course, the political issue is an issue in the United States. It may be in other countries where it is used as a means of intimidation and control. Of course, that's wrong. But what we're dealing with here is the, the basis, the principle of capital punishment. Often the procedural objection is used as simply a front for the moral objection. Their, their underlying problem is that they think it's immoral, but they will use the procedural objection because it sounds like it has a certain amount of legitimacy in order to gain leverage to stop capital punishment until we, quote, uh, fix it. And their assumption is that, that it is basically done in a wrong way, and therefore we should stop doing it. Now, it's a valid principle that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. But we have to assume that in capital punishment, even though we know that it is that there are always going to be innocent people, no matter how wonderful, no matter how objective, no matter how fair a judicial system may be, there's always going to be people who are unfairly or wrongly accused of a crime, found guilty of the crime, and punished for the crime. That's a sad and sorrowful thing when it happens, but it happens. 
God in his omniscience knew that it would happen. Nevertheless, he still delegated to fallen, corrupt humanity the responsibility to adjudicate in areas of capital offenses and to punish through the use of capital punishment. So to say that we shouldn't do it because we might make a mistake is to impugn the integrity of God, the omniscience of God, and is in fact a statement of blasphemy. While it is true that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong, it is not so much that people who are guilty of murder are being unfairly punished. Let's say you have a hundred criminals on death row. It is not that they shouldn't be on death row. It's that there should be more on death row. So you don't stop by saying, okay, we're just going to to not have capital punishment because this has been unfairly applied. It's not being unfairly applied in the sense that they shouldn't be there. You know, assuming that they were all found guilty uh, in a court of law and that they are guilty, it's not that they shouldn't be uh, executed. It is that others should also be executed, that we are unfairly applying it, and because of the problems in the system, there are those who are getting, you know, stepping through various loopholes and, and as it were, getting away with murder and not having to uh, pay the ultimate penalty for it. So you don't stop your executions. You just work within the system to expand the uh, application of the law so that it is done in a more uh, correct manner. Problem is, when you're living in a culture like ours where you have so many different screwy ideas that are coming across through the news media, and they, most people in the news media uh, object to any kind of absolute that comes from a biblical framework, and that influences uh, culture, and it influences people in an inordinate way. So we have to take our stand on biblical principle and then work out from the clearly stated biblical principle. Now, The situation we're in today, as I stated last time, was that in 1972 the argument that was used by the Supreme Court focused on the fact that uh, capital punishment, as it was practiced, was a cruel and unusual punishment. After states, various states changed their laws, then the Supreme Court uh, accepted it again. So by 1976 the death penalty was reinstated. Now, what I began at the end of last hour doing was to, do a, was to look at a summary of the doctrine of capital punishment in the Scriptures, and I want to run through that again just to bring us up to, up to where we are this evening. First point was that capital punishment is first and foremost an issue of theology. See, where you come in human viewpoint is you approach things usually from some sort of empirical basis. Does it work? Is it a deterrent? Asking those questions. Those are wrong questions because we see coming from divine viewpoint in our study of Genesis 9 that the rationale that God used is that man is in the image of God. So it has to do with the idea of punishment and removing someone who has allowed their sin nature to go so much out of control that they now become a danger to society. And that's the point. This is the foundational 
argument. And this destroys, if you think it through, it destroys the insanity argument. People are not born insane. People are not born with some sort of these, these maladies. They develop over a period of time because of the bad decisions that people make. And those bad decisions accumulate in some people's lives to the point that they no longer can control their sin nature and they begin to perform actions that are criminal and actions that are uh, dangerous to society at large. And they have, because of their lack of self-control and because of the series of bad decisions that they have made, have forfeited the right to live. And that's the point. See, modern man says, well, nothing can uh, be so great as to forfeit the right to live. And what they have done is they have taken the concept of right to life and they've pulled it as an abstract principle and elevated it above everything else. But man does not have the right to do that. See, this is why it goes right back to the creator-creature distinction. God, as the creator, has the right to determine what life is, what constitutes life, and what constitutes forfeiture of life. Only God has the right to do that. And God has made it clear to us in Scripture what those parameters are and what the basis is for taking life in a legitimate manner. So that uh, capital punishment then becomes first and foremost an issue of theology. What do you think about God and your understanding of God's revelation of the issues for man? So it goes back to theological assumptions. If you reject God and think that the center point for, for absolutes and determining values is in the creature, then you're inherently going to be, ba- be involved in some sort of relativistic situation. Second point we looked at from the scriptures, the capital punishment was not a part of the first two dispensations. At least it is not clear that it was a part of those dispensations, but I think there's a clear indication that capital punishment in some form was administered during the the first uh, or during the second dispensation the first dispensation is the dispensation of perfect environment but when adam and eve fell when the sin occurred and they were ejected from the garden of eden we read in genesis 3:24 so god drove out the man and he placed cherubim that's plural he placed cherubs all around the perimeter of the garden of eden And a flaming sword, each one has a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, if you study the use of the word sword, as we'll see this evening when we get to Romans 13, 3 and 4, the sword is a weapon that is designed to take life. That's its purpose. If this had been written in a modern time, it would would have had uh, a 45 or a 9 millimeter or uh, an Uzi, or some other kind of modern weapon would have been the the, uh, metaphor that was used there. The sword indicates the the ability to take life. And so anyone who tried to invade the Garden of Eden during that period of uh, human conscience, the dispensation of human conscience between the fall and the flood, would have been executed by one of the cherubs. That was their job. So there was capital punishment in that sense, but it wasn't delegated to man. Capital punishment isn't delegated to man until 
we get to the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. So that leads us to point number three. The capital punishment is as much a part of the Noahic covenant as the promise to not flood the earth again and the authorization to eat meat. The point is that the Noahic covenant is a permanent covenant until the uh, second, well, it's a permanent covenant until this earth is destroyed by fire at the end of the millennial kingdom. The It is just the third, or actually the second modification of the initial creation covenant. We have the creation covenant in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, when God creates man in his image and sets him over the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and he is to rule the planet as God's representative. That is modified after the fall because of the consequences of the fall. So then you have the second covenant, which is called the Adamic covenant, and it's modified because of the fall, and then this is the modification that occurs after the flood. So the Noahic covenant repeats the same terminology, and we went through that study showing that the same terminology that's used in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is used in Genesis chapter 9. So this is sort of the second revision of the original creation covenant due to man's sinfulness and man's fall. But it contains a promise to not flood the earth again, and as part of the covenant, man is given the responsibility to take the life of those who take human life. Whether it's an animal or another human being, if you take the life in terms of uh, a murder, not we're not talking about an accident, we're not talking about some form of uh, manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, that kind of a, a concept, we're talking about first-degree premeditated homicide. So capital punishment is just as much part of the Noahic covenant. So it continues. It's a permanent covenant. That doesn't change with the cross. The only covenant that's temporary and conditional was the Mosaic covenant. When Jesus Christ came, died on the cross, it was the end of the law. And so we came under a new dispensation after that. But that only affects the Mosaic law, which was temporary. It doesn't affect... The, new, the Noahic covenant. The old covenant's replaced by the new covenant, but neither of them have anything to do with the Noahic covenant uh, given in Genesis 9. So it's still in effect. Fourth, the authorization for capital punishment comes from God, not from man. This is a divine mandate. It is not something man developed in order to solve problems in society. It's just like we, when we studied the first three divine institutions of human responsibility, marriage, and family, those were not institutions generated by man to somehow solve problems. They were God created and designed the human race to function in a certain way, and these are institutions that God built into the warp and woof of human society and human behavior. So this now becomes uh, another part of it with the fourth divine institution that God establishes, uh, human government. Fifth, the authorization for capital punishment is a mandate. It's not an option. It's, it's a mandate. It's not an option. Now, we'll see that there's room for grace, but that doesn't mean that you do away with the mandate. Six, the authorization for capital punishment is not based on pragmatic, such as a deterrent effect, but on an absolute, that man is in the image of God. So therefore, 
You can't come along and say that, oh, it doesn't deter people, so let's not do it. It's based on an absolute unchangeable principle. Seventh, thus the authorization for capital punishment provides the basis for human government. Human government can exist in many forms, tribal, clan, village. It can even function in a family form if you're small enough, a patriarchal government. It can function as a village, a city, a region, a state, or a nation, so it doesn't necessarily involve nations. It doesn't necessarily involve the, the uh, division into national government. So the exist, what it calls for is the existence of some authorized, legitimate ruling authority that is not necessarily synonymous to a nation. Now, in our culture and civilization, it is, ultimately does go to a nation, but that has not always been true in the post-flood, post-Diluvian civilization. Eighth, the Noahic Covenant legitimizes capital punishment for only murder, but this doesn't restrict its application in other areas. Just because only murder is mentioned in Genesis 9 doesn't mean that it can only be in other areas. Because the Mosaic Law comes along, point number nine, the Mosaic Law provides a divinely authored government constitution showing that capital punishment may be applied in other areas. But application in these areas is not mandatory. It was for Israel as a nation, but it was not binding on Gentile nations. Now, what I'm emphasizing here is something that is crucial to understand for tonight's study, and that is that the Mosaic Covenant is viewed as a legal document. It is, it is an integrated whole. You can't separate. You can't go in and say, well, we're going to take out these three or four provisions here and apply them and not these. It's a whole document, just like the Constitution of the United States. Either you, the whole thing is in effect or it's not in effect. And it was a legal constitution for the theocracy of Israel. Now, a theocracy is a form of government where God functions as the executive branch. In a monarchy, you have a, a form of aristocracy, some aristocratic family that serves as the monarch, as the executive branch. In other forms of government, you have different executive branches. Uh, you have uh, dictators that serve as uh, the executive branch, the ruling or final authority in, in the uh, system. But in the Mosaic Law, God serves as the king. And there's a bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy were the priests and the Levites, and they carried out the various functions of collecting taxes, which are called tithes. Tithes were 10% taxes, there were three different tithes, income taxes, that were levied for the uh, provision of the nation to provide for widows and orphans and various other facets, such as the uh, taking care of the livelihood for the, for the priests and the, and the uh, Levites to take care of all of their logistical needs. Now, within the Mosaic Law, you have two different elements of the law code. Part of that law code is civil and criminal law. The other part of the law code has to do with ritual. So you have those two different elements, the civil and criminal law and ritual law, but they're all part of the same document. Now, in the criminal law, there were various different crimes that demanded physical, I mean, demanded capital punishment. Murder, Sabbath violation, cursing of parents, adultery, incest, sodomy, 
false prophecy, idolatry, incorrigible juvenile rebellion, rape, animals that killed humans, kidnapping, aliens or foreigners that intrude into a sacred place. All of these required the death penalty under the Mosaic Law. Now, who wrote the Mosaic Law? God wrote the Mosaic Law. Therefore, what we must say is that as a law code, it is perfect. It is not imperfect. Now, people tend to come to this from the framework of the New Testament where you have the Pharisees who have distorted the Mosaic Law. And so they tend to look at the Mosaic Law through that twisted, corrupted lens of the Pharisees and think, well, the Mosaic Law really wasn't very good. No, the Mosaic Law was good. It was a perfect system of freedom. It was a perfect system of law that came from the hand of God, and you can't invalidate it. It defines, from God's perspective, what freedom is. See, you don't define freedom by going out and looking at cultural institutions. You don't develop freedom from the bottom up. You start with a divine revelation, and you then uh, deduct your ideas of freedom from your study of the Word of God. So the Mosaic Law is a perfect law code. Now, that doesn't mean that every nation needs to take the Mosaic Law and make it their constitution. There's elements of the Mosaic Law that were specifically oriented to Israel because Israel was God's firstborn son. In the Old Testament, Israel is God's chosen covenant nation. No other nation has the same relationship to God that the Jews had because they are God's chosen people. So you can't take the Mosaic Law and then put that over as a constitution governing document for some other country. But it does provide a model and a basis and shows where there is legitimacy in crime and punishment. One of the things I have always thought is fascinating about the Mosaic Law is that there is no incarceration for criminal activity in the Mosaic Law. Think about that. Incarceration for criminal activity comes out of paganism. It doesn't, didn't come out of the Bible. Furthermore, you don't have, uh, as we'll get into the law of Lex Talionis in a minute, you don't have the, the dismemberment penalties like you do in Islam where you have somebody cutting off, punching out an eye, where you take the phrase eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in a literal manner, and you dismember, you know, cut off hands for a thief or gouge out an eye or cut off an ear, cut out a tongue. Those kinds of things are barbarities in paganism. What you have is a system where you either you lose, forfeit your life or you become a slave to pay off and give remuneration for your crime, one or the other. And I think that we, it certainly is a simpler system. And you wonder how you could apply that today, and I think there's a lot of different ways. Anybody who commits a crime involving sex, drugs, or firearms gets a death penalty. Everybody else gets to work for the state and go out and pave the highways until they you know, pay a minimum wage and half of it's garnered to pay back their victims. I mean, real simple. You know, and uh, somebody is oversight, and if they fail to do that, then you execute them. So you just have a real simple system. And the thing about crime and punishment is it has to be sure, certain, and speedy. And it's not. 
so people think they can get away with it. So it has, very, the way it's most is practiced in this country, it has very little uh, it has very little deterrent effect in any area of criminality. So what we see here is that the death penalty applies to a number of different categories that we certainly in our enlightened society, I always love the way they use that, we're, we're so enlightened, but this is God's light. And God's light is superior to our, our light. And in God's light, the cap, capital punishment applies to numerous areas that we would not apply it to. And I think part of this involving cursing of parents, uh, incest, sodomy, adultery, has to do with protecting the nation from losing the divine institutions of marriage and family. Once they're gone, the nation is going to fragment and implode, which is what's happening in our nation today. Now, point number 10, all new material. The Old Testament model was called Lex Talionis. Lex Talionis, the law of retaliation. The term Lex Talionis is a Latin term that was used in Roman law, but the concept of a law of retaliation goes back as far as the laws of Lipit Ishtar around 1850 B.C., which if you take the chronology that I do in Genesis, that is only about 800 years, eight or 900 years after the flood. So it goes back to the laws of Lipit Ishtar in Babylon and the Code of Hammurabi around 1792-1750 B.C. In the law of retaliation, the idea was that the penalty should not exceed the crime. The penalty should not exceed the crime, and it was designed to protect the guilty from the excessive vengeance of the innocent so that they would not be over-penalized for a crime. Now, the other aspect that's important to understand on the law of uh, Lex Talionis, law of retaliation, is that it doesn't necessarily mandate the harshest penalty allowed by law. It doesn't mandate the harshest penalty. So someone may commit a crime, and the harshest penalty allowed by that crime would be the death penalty, but it would leave it up to the judge because there may be ameliorating circumstances. There may be some factors involved that mean that there should be some sort of lessening of the penalty. And you see this in one example in the Old Testament when David commits adultery, which was a capital crime, with Bathsheba, then he conspires with Joab to have her husband Uriah the Hittite put in a position in battle so that he would be killed. He conspires to commit murder. So David is guilty of two capital crimes. Yet God commutes the sentence. Now God can do that because God is the ultimate judge. He has the right to do that. But the implication is that there are circumstances where a human judge can do that as well under certain circumstances, but it should be used sparingly. Now, God did commute the death penalty for David, but David had to go through a fourfold uh, penalty of divine discipline. The baby that was born to Bathsheba died. Then he had two of his uh, children commit incest. Absalom then murdered his brother who committed incest with the sister, 
And then Absalom led, later led the nation in revolt against his father, David. So the whole family implodes, and it brought not only heartache to David because of what he saw take place in his own family, but it also brought uh, heartache to the nation because of the uh, Absalom revolt. So the Old Testament model for Lex Talionis established the principle of that the penalty must not exceed the crime. Now, there's three passages in the Torah, in the Old Testament, that utilize the principle and explain the principle of lex talionis. The first is in Exodus 21, 24, and 25. Exodus 21, 24, and 25. And the context of this particular passage deals with the two men who are involved in a fight. The two men who are involved in a fight, and in the midst of that fight, a woman is hurt so that she gives birth prematurely. And yet, as the passage says, yet no harm follows. What this is saying is that as a result of the fight, the child is born prematurely and then doesn't die. Often you'll have people go here and deal with this as if it's a miscarriage. It's not a miscarriage. The child is born. And it's whether there's uh, harm to the woman. If she suffers physical harm afterwards, then there was to be punishment. If there was physical harm to the child after it was born, then there would be punishment as well. And the principle is laid down, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, this is very important. In fact, this, I worked, went through this this morning. Um, got a lot of help on this from work that Dan has been doing on his master's thesis. He's treated, he's dealt with the passage in Matthew chapter 5, dealing with turning the other cheek. He's done a great job with it. And I got up this morning, read through his whole, whole thesis and did a fantastic job. And he made a point I had never thought about on this particular passage, and that is that only the concept of life for life, which isn't included in this passage, only the concept of life for life was ever taken literally. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, was always taken in a figurative manner. Now, the Bible uses all kinds of figures of speech to communicate. Everyone does. You do that every day. You use exaggeration. You use metaphor. You use simile. We all do that. That's part of communication. So when you have uh, literal, when you believe in a literal interpretation, a literal hermeneutic, that doesn't mean you don't believe in figures of speech, but you have to understand what those figures of speech communicated. So we use figures of speech embedded within our language every day, and we have to understand when they're to be taken literally and when they aren't. Well, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, and on, was never taken literally. Now that was taken literally by Muhammad when he wrote the Koran, so that in Islam there is this dismemberment factor in their punitive laws. But that is not how Israel ever practiced this or ever understood this. It is simply a metaphor for saying that remuneration will be made in kind. And as you go through the Mosaic Law, there are various various financial figures that are assigned to different crimes. If 
you are, uh, if you cause a man's workhorse or his mule to, to die, well, that mule has a certain value. doesn't mean that he gets to come over and kill your mule, but you have to pay him uh, in kind. You have to give him a make financial restitution for what he lost. If you do some, if you steal from someone, you have to recompense uh, the, uh, the same amount. So there's a cost involved, and there's financial remuneration. If you steal from someone, it doesn't mean that that they get to come and steal from you. So it was never understood in a literal fashion, other than the phrase "life for life." And the way you interpret that is because there are clear passages that tell you that that. If someone committed this crime, they were to die. So that explains that one phrase in a literal way, but the other phrases were understood as simply a a metaphor for a payment in kind and to the same degree. A second passage that utilizes the lex talionis is in Lex uh, Leviticus twenty four uh, twenty, where we have the phrase of fracture for fracture. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so shall it be inflicted on him. Now, this is not talking about the fact that if you cause an accident, it's your fault, and somebody breaks their leg, that you get that, um, and it's your fault that they get to come over and break your leg. But that if you cause a certain damage to them, that there would be a financial cost assigned to that, and there would be financial remuneration. You have the same terminology in Deuteronomy 19.19, 19, Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So life for life was the only one that was taken literally and understood to be applied literally. So the law of lex talionis, first of all, was designed to prevent excessive retaliation or vengeance from the offended party. It was designed to prevent excessive retaliation or vengeance. The, the penalty must not exceed the crime. Second point, in summary, is that life for life is the only part of the phrase that was ever taken or understood in a literal fashion. The other was just a metaphor to indicate that punishment must be to the same degree as the crime. Third, in the Mosaic Law, some form of financial remuneration was set for all other injuries and criminal acts. In the Mosaic Law, there's no dismemberment or anything like that. It was never understood or practiced as such. The main idea is that repayment would be in terms of equal value. Now, what happens by the time you get into the New Testament period is the Pharisees had distorted the law. Now, what happened was that during the period of the Babylonian captivity, the they realized it was such a painful period for the nation's history because God removed them from the land. When they came back to the land, they sort of, as it were, scratched their head and said, what can we do to prevent this kind of divine discipline again? We broke God's law. That was the purpose for, divine, for the divine discipline being taken out of the land. So we have to make sure we never break God's law. So the way to do that is to look at the 613 commandments in the Mosaic Law and around each one of those commandments, we're going to create a series of commandments to build a fence around that commandment so that to make sure that if we don't break one of these other commandments, then we certainly won't break the main commandment. So they created these traditions and secondary laws. 
And then they came along after that and they said, well, we need to make sure that, that we don't break any of those laws. So they built a fence around each one of those laws. So what you had was a whole array of traditions and laws that were set up and ultimately was designed to prevent people from breaking the Mosaic law as it were. But they took on a legalistic, superficial uh, aspect to them and they lost the spirit of the law and the, uh, any concept or understanding of grace. So that when it comes to the law of retaliation, the Pharisees had distorted that law to the idea that it required a corresponding punishment and that they were to seek the highest form of retaliation. And this bred in the Pharisaic interpretation an atmosphere of personal vengeance and retaliation. So the, the Pharisees, by the time Jesus came on the scene, the Pharisees were using the Mosaic law as a justification for personal vengeance. A justification for personal vengeance. And as I pointed out last time, capital punishment is not a matter of vengeance, it's a matter of justice. And we have the phrase in the scripture, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And the idea isn't vengeance in the sense of personal vindictiveness, but it is vengeance in the idea of executing justice, executing justice from the Supreme Court of heaven. Now we come to point, point 10, again, just to reiterate, point 10 was the idea that the Mosaic law, the model in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law was lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Now, in point 11, point 11, which I don't have up on the screen, lex talionis represents the maximum punishment. This allows for grace on the part of the judiciary to lower the penalty. Now, that grace should be used sparingly, but it recognizes the validity of extenuating circumstances. And as I stated already, God commuted the death sentence for David, and there are some other examples in the Scripture of God uh, dealing with people in grace and not on the basis of what they deserve. But that concept had been lost by the Pharisees. So point number 12, Jesus did not change the standards in the Sermon on the Mount. Now see, the reason I'm going to this point is because of certain things that are said in the Sermon on the Mount. And while I'm explaining this, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5 that there are those who believe that Matthew 5 is a new ethic, a new standard for the Christian life, that the purpose of Matthew 5 is not to re necessarily to replace the Mosaic law, or, or it is to replace the Mosaic law with a new standard. However, we have to realize that in Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So if you try to say that the Mosaic Law in any way, or the Sermon on the Mount in any way, replaces the Mosaic Law, or that Jesus is changing the terms of the Mosaic Law, then that violates Matthew 5.17. Because in Matthew 5.17, he's saying that he came to establish or fulfill the law and the prophets, not to abolish them. He's not changing what the law says. So when you get into passages 
down in Matthew 5:38 to 48, you have to understand that whatever Jesus is saying, it is not in contrast to the Mosaic Law. If the Mosaic Law clearly teaches capital punishment, then Jesus is not coming along and providing an ethic in the Sermon on the Mount that would do away with capital punishment. What he's dealing with in, in Matthew 5 and 6 is an interpretation of the law, the, his interpretation of the Mosaic Law in contrast to the interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. This is seen in Matthew 5.20 where Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing we see is that Jesus did not rewrite the Mosaic law and give a new ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount must be understood in terms of its context. In Matthew's gospel, we're treated to a gospel that is designed to show that Jesus is the prophesied and promised Messiah from the Old Testament. We've studied this many times that John the Baptist came on the scene preaching the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came on the scene and said the same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. God is now going to fulfill that which he promised in the Old Testament. As Matthew presents John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, notice Matthew never tries to explain what the kingdom means. He never defines it. Why? Because the people understood what he meant. They've got the whole Old Testament as their background. God promised a kingdom. He promised a king in the form of the Messiah, a king who would reign. We've studied this in Daniel 7 under the terminology Son of Man. We've studied it in, Dan- in uh, Psalm 2 under the concept of the Davidic king, the, the, uh, the Davidic son there, the one who is declared to be the Son of God in Daniel 2 and various other passages. So the context of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is the presentation of the kingdom. In Matthew, Jesus presents the Sermon on the Mount very early. Now, there's a similar message in Luke. In Luke, we're specifically told that Jesus went out on the plain. There's a difference between a plain and a mountain. You go out to Kansas sometime and then go over to Colorado, you'll see the difference between the plains and the mountains. So when the text says Jesus went up on the mountain and addressed his disciples in Matthew 5, it's not the same sermon that he gave in Luke. It is similar, but like any good pastor, any good evangelist, Jesus gave the same message over and over again. It's called repetition to make sure people get the point. And there are many, many times that you go over the same material, and each time you teach it, you add something or you change something, you say it in a slightly different way, But the emphasis is still the same. Now, in Matthew, we see that the Sermon on the Mount is given very early in Jesus' career, probably in the first year of his ministry. So this is setting the stage. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is answering the question, what kind of righteousness is required to enter the kingdom? The Pharisees, through their system of laws that they had established through the Mishnah and later the Talmud, those were the fences that they set up around the, the 613 commandments of the Torah. And, and those traditions and laws, they were establishing their interpretation 
of righteousness in the Mosaic law. This is what's required to have salvation. This is what's required to get into the kingdom. But Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is going to interpret the Mosaic law from the God's divine viewpoint in terms of divine authorship in contrast to what the Pharisees have been saying all along. The Pharisees had perverted the law of Moses into a system of righteousness based on works, and thus they had created, they had destroyed a system of freedom and substituted a system of slavery to a works-oriented righteousness. Now we have to remember the passage I quoted earlier that Jesus is not, did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. So whatever he's saying, it's not a contrast to the law. So let's look at what he says starting, well, let's start at chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's a correct translation as we'll see eventually. We'll get to the passage in Exodus 20:13 that is not to be translated, you shall not kill. See, every liberal goes to it and you'll find somebody says, uh, we can't have capital punishment because the Bible says you can't kill. You can't be in the military because the Bible says you can't kill. And so they want to elevate that to an absolute. But the Hebrew word there is ratzach, and it means murder. It, it is not the word for kill. The same in the Greek. You have a word for a technical word for murder, and that's the word that's used here. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Okay, that's what uh, the Pharisees taught. Jesus gives his interpretation, and he says, look, the righteousness isn't just an external righteousness of don't commit murder. It goes deeper than that. It has to do with the underlying mental attitude. You have a mental attitude, sin of arrogance and hostility to somebody else. That's violating the law of loving your neighbor as yourself, and it's a sin, and you're just as, you're just as guilty of violating the law and, and sin, and that is, uh, and unless you're saved, that's the... Um, Basis for eternal condemnation. Verse 22. And he goes on, and then we'll skip down. He has several other clarifications in the next couple of passages. And then he comes to uh, verse 38, where he quotes the principle, the law of retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, that is what the Old Testament taught. Now he is going to apply it. He says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, a lot of people quote that out of context. They use that to support pacifism. They use that to try to support an argument against capital punishment. You know, if they, if they followed out their argument to its logical conclusion, you wouldn't have a judicial system. But look at the verse. I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, what happens? I want you to put your hand on your right cheek just so you know where it is. Now, if somebody's going to hit you on your right cheek, if most people are right-handed, they're going to have to backhand you to hit you on your right cheek. They're not going to be hitting you with a left hook. And the the the... The idiom was that for this indicates that this is a personal insult. 
When you slap somebody with the back of your hand, that's a personal insult. It's an affront. So this is not talking about literally slapping somebody. You see, you didn't have a problem in Israel that people were going around slapping each other. You know, Dan came up with that observation. I thought that was brilliant. This is not a problem in Israel. People aren't slap happy. It is an idiom for being offended, being insulted by somebody. And so when Jesus says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, what he is saying is whoever insults you, turn the other to him also. In other words, don't go looking for harm. See, you've got to contrast this with the Pharisaic attitude. The Pharisaic mentality was to, to look for an offense and then to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. And what, this, what Jesus is saying here is if someone offends you or insults you, don't take offense, don't make an issue out of it. Deal with them in grace and generosity. Just because they have done something wrong doesn't justify you in pro- prosecuting them to the fullest extent of the law. And then he develops that and applies it in some other areas. For example, verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And this would have to do with the idea of going to court and gaining surety for a contract. If somebody wanted more than your tunic, then give it to them. Don't make, don't, if they want to take you to court to get more, to guarantee a contract, you know, don't force them to take you to court. Just go ahead and give them the extra if that's what they want. That's the idea there. It's not talking about physically taking your coat off and giving it to them. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This was a problem at that time because Roman soldiers had the right, if they were, if they were walking down the highway and they had their, their backpack and all their gear with you, they could grab a Jewish citizen and just say, just impress him into service. Say, you have to carry my gear a mile. And then the next... When they got to the end of that mile, he would grab somebody else and say, okay, now it's your turn to carry my stuff. So they were uh, using that to compel Jews to carry all of their gear. And so Jesus just says, if that happens, then, you know, go two miles with him. Treat him in grace. Don't treat him in, in this legalistic mentality of the Pharisees. So we come to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, that is, on the evil person and on the good person, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, this is talking about personal relationships. This is not talking about what takes place at a national level or what takes place in terms of of judicial penalty for criminal activity. This is dealing with how you exercise love for your neighbor. You can love another person and have them executed. A few years ago, there was a lady down in Texas who uh, was was became a, I think she had committed uh, several murders, and she was on death row. And while she was on death row, she became a believer. And so people were saying, oh, now she's a Christian. They ought to let her off. Jerry Falwell wrote a letter. All these pastors around the country wrote a letter now. Now she's a Christian, let her off. Whether or not you're a Christian doesn't have anything to do with the criminal act. Just because you become a a Christian doesn't mean you don't have to pay the penalty of law. So that was a mistake on their part. Uh, It was reviewed many times by the Supreme Court in Texas, and they uh, rightfully 
executed her, and she deserved to be executed because of the crime that she had committed. But she is, by the grace of God, in heaven. And so that has been, her, her eternal salvation has been dealt with. Okay, the twelfth uh, point, or this would be the thirteenth point. Jesus did not negate capital punishment for the woman taken in adultery. See, I've heard some people say that when the Pharisees brought the woman taken in adultery in John 6, and they asked Jesus who, uh, what they should do, John chapter, let me see, let me turn to that. John chapter 6. Now I have the wrong passage, wrong. Wrong reference. Um, where is the passage? The woman taken in adultery. See, that's what happens when I change Bibles and nothing's familiar anymore and I can't find anything. Well, one of you will find it for me. The principle there is that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They're not going through the principle of correct legal action. They don't have two witnesses. They've set the whole situation up. And the purpose is not to try to uh, execute the law in a fair and judicious manner. They're attempting to trap Jesus. And in the process, they're going to trap uh, this particular woman. And they really have no... Uh, concern for her uh, whatsoever. And so Jesus tells them that, that whoever is guilty cast the first stone. In, a, in, in their attempt to trap him, what they're trying to do is, is force him into a situation where he says, okay, go ahead and execute her. Well, now he's going to violate Roman law because the Jews could not execute someone uh, while they were under Roman domination. So if Jesus had said to execute her, then he would have been in violation of Roman law. If he had said, well, don't stone her, don't execute her, then he would have violated the Mosaic law. But what he says is, whoever was among you without, a, without sin cast the first stone, and they all ended up walking away. So in a very sophisticated way, Jesus avoided the entire trap that they had set for him. But he doesn't change the law. We have to go back to Matthew 5. Uh, 17, that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to uh, establish it. Point number 13. Romans 13, 3-4 establishes the legitimacy of capital punishment as well as the military and its uh, establishment of judicial authority. Romans 13, 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to, ha- do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, you have to remember that in Romans 13, Paul is writing in the context of the worst emperor ever to rule in Rome. The the most horrendous tyrant was Nero. And so Nero is abusing authority left and right. He is as bad as Hitler or Stalin, perhaps. And yet Paul establishes the principle in verse 1, that there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that, are, that exist are appointed for God. Even bad authorities are appointed by God. And so he says, 
in verse 4, for it is a minister of God to you for good. That is authority in principle. Even if the person in office is not worthy of respect, even if the person in office abuses respect, the office is established by God and is due respect because of the office. Now, that has application in marriage. Ladies, your husband may be a loser, but he's in the office of being the authority over the family. So even if he is a failure, you have to treat him with respect because of the office he holds in the family. The same is true of the president. And apparently the liberal press corps that was with the president last night just abused him and showed all kinds of disrespect in the way they handled it because we've lost this principle in this country. It doesn't matter whether you agree or disagree with somebody's policies. If they're in a position of authority, you respect them because of their position, not because of who they are as the individual. You respect the office. So the office is established by God for good, Romans 13:4. If you do what is evil, Paul says, be afraid, for it, that is the office, the authority, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. There's that phrase. What does it mean to bear the sword? That, ha- that means it has the right to determine life or death. It is an idiom for execution. It's an idiom that has to do with executing military power in defense of a nation as well as execution in capital crime. So the government does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger, and that isn't the word for, uh, for avenge, it is a word based on the concept of decay for righteousness, which means it is the, the office that, that executes righteousness, who executes justice, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The concept of an avenger, if it doesn't generate for you images of uh, Mrs. Peel and Steed in the old 1960s uh, British uh, television show, then it brings to mind the idea of someone trying to get personal vengeance. That's not the idea. It is the idea it is someone who brings about justice or punishes injustice. So that's the role of government, and it utilizes the sword as the ultimate penalty in uh, criminality. So point number 13 goes to our, this should be point number 14. 13 was Jesus did not negate capital punishment with the Roman t- woman taken in adultery. 14 is Romans 13, 3 and 4. And then point 15 deals with certain objections, most of which I've dealt with already. Main objection here is based on Exodus 20:13, you shall not murder. This is the Hebrew word ratzach, which is the word for premeditated murder. It is not the word for killing in self-defense. It's not the word for killing to protect one's country or home. It is the word for killing in military, it's not the word for killing in military service or in a judicial manner. It is a technical word for premeditated homicide. So there's no basis in scripture to argue against capital punishment. Capital punishment was established by God as a means of controlling criminality and protecting society from people who can no longer control their sin nature. And when they reach a certain level of, of um, instability and lack of control, they forfeit their right to life. And if you commit certain acts, then you have forfeited your right to, li- to life. It doesn't mean you're not a nice person. 
Many criminals are very nice at times, but there's some acts that completely negate everything else that they've done in life because it has to do with reducing control or losing control of your sin nature. And when a person gets to the point where they can't control themselves, on some circumstances they forfeit the right to continue living because they're now a danger to society. Well, that concludes our two-lesson study on capital punishment as part of our study of Genesis 9, and we'll come back when I return from Russia with our study of the conclusion of the episode with Noah, and then we'll press on in Genesis with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to understand with clarity how you have delegated certain responsibilities to mankind, to the human race, in order to uh, carry out uh, our governing procedures so that we might have stability uh, within a nation or with any entity, whether it's a small group, village, clan, or family, uh, even to the extent of an entire nation. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, further help us to understand the implications of Scripture in every area of life and that we would be challenged by these things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.